Today on Fuzzy Logic, it is Darwin Day. No, we're not talking about the capital city of the NT. We are talking about Charles Darwin, evolutionary biologist whose theories of evolution changed our thinking. Find out more today, right here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday, right here in the 2XX FM studios, broadcasting through Canberra and surrounds, or maybe you're listening online at 2XXFM.org.au. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us for another Sunday. In fact, this is a really special Sunday. This is February 12, and today is Darwin Day. That's the day that we celebrate the birth of uh, Charles Darwin, born 12th of February, 1809. And uh, we're going to be talking all about Darwin and his uh, evolution science, what, it ha- what happened back in, uh, in his day and what's still happening now in the world of evolution. And to help me out with that, I've brought a special guest in the studio. Uh, this morning we have Dr. Emma Sherratt. Emma's a postdoc researcher at the Division of Ecology and Evolution at the Research School of Biology right here in the Australian National University in Canberra. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, Broderick. How are you? I'm going well. Yourself? Very well, thank you. It's a great day, isn't it? Are you, you're excited as an evolutionary biologist? So excited. This is our day of the year. <laughs> do you have little parties everywhere for Sometimes, it? yes, we do, actually. Oh, yeah. oh, awesome, because it would change days every year. So sometimes you're in the office and sometimes you're on radio talking about Darwin. As scientists, we're always in the office on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't make exceptions, should I? No, no indeed. Well, look, we, we're very excited to have you here to help celebrate Darwin's birthday with us uh, way back in 1809. So what's that? That's 200 and something odd years ago that uh, 208? Yes, yes, 208 years. 208th yes. birthday for Darwin. He would uh, be pretty old by now, yes. <laughs> he would. That, that giant beard that he has would have grown quite long, I feel. I think so. Um, as part of my research for this episode, I quite, I quite enjoyed looking at Darwin and seeing his progression um, as, a, as a man from a, from a young boy who, you know, looked young and innocent to this, this man with these wonderful little sideburns. And then suddenly he went bald and that was, he still looked reasonably young. And then just it looks like instantly he got this giant beard on his face. And that seems to be the Darwin that's depicted in, uh, in a lot of uh, the images of Darwin. Um, is is the, the beard part of uh, being an evolutionary scientist? Uh, I think so. And I've been trying to cultivate mine for a long time. But sadly, <laughs> so, you know, I'm a, I'm a little deficient on the, the, the right hormones to grow a full yeah. beard. Um, but I think it's funny that his hair sort of drifted down from the top of his head to, to his chin. Because actually some of the things that he was really interested in, not in biology, but in geology, was about the, the movement of um, tectonic plates and in the movement of rocks. And so it's kind of you know, natural that his hair would have moved from his head to his chin. (laughs) That's just the way things go. Awesome. Well, okay, so we don't have a beard. A beard isn't a requisite to be a scientist. I will will give you that. So what did bring you into the world of evolutionary biology? Um, I think uh, a very untraditional way, and but perhaps none of my colleagues um, really went um, a traditional route from school to biology. I know some people who wanted to be paleontologists all of their lives. Myself, I wanted to be a dentist. Uh, so I spent most of my teenage years preparing for dental school, and I did my biology and math, maths and chemistry, uh, and I didn't get the grades to get into university for, for dentistry. So I came to Australia, and I did a 
gap year and I worked in the Billabong Sanctuary in Townsville uh, at the um, Australian Reptile Park in Alice Springs. And that was when I discovered I wanted to be a zoologist. And so I went back to the UK and did a, a Bachelor of Science at the University of Manchester in zoology. And I think really the point at which I became an evolutionary biologist was when I got the chance to work at the Natural History Museum in London. Yeah. Well, it seems like a... I mean, almost a, a step uh, backwards in time going going into evolution from animals to evolution to work out how they came to be. Was that was that kind of where it happened for you, delving into the history of, of the natural world? Definitely. I was so fascinated by animals, and particularly in Australia, you've got the strangest of creatures <laughs> that... Darwin also thought was truly remarkable when he came here because things were so different. We'd heard about them already in the UK uh, at that time, but it was to see them with your own eyes, particularly things like the um, the duckbill platypus, such a strange creature indeed. Mm. Um, really, that inspires curiosity in anyone, and that's why people love docos like David Attenborough's works today because people are relate to evolution and the diversity of organisms that it's produced. Sorry, you said Darwin came to Australia to see our animals. Oh, where, he did. where was Darwin out here? Darwin spent his 27th birthday in Australia. He was here for 61 days. Um, he said to his sister, he wrote in a letter that he was really excited to come to Australia, particularly to come to, uh, to Sydney. And I think at the beginning he really liked it, but then he did make a few derogatory comments about how it was more of a town than a city. Um, but so here, was this, was this Darwin's gap year? This, uh, this... I would like to think of it as Darwin's gap year. It was actually right at the end of his um, Beagle voyage. Oh, so okay. he'd already been on the Beagle for four years, and then it came around the coast of Australia, um, landing in Sydney. And he came to uh, Sydney itself. He also visited Bathurst. Um, and then he went on to uh, end up in Tasmania. Um, and uh, I think he, he found Tasmania very beautiful and liked it a lot. He was just enamoured by um, certainly the, the Blue Mountains. But when he got to see the, the, the red plains of nothingness to the west of the Blue Mountains, he was a bit disappointed. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it almost looks like you're not going to see anything again once you get out to that red dirt. But of course, there's there's amazing things to be discovered out in the middle of the desert if you just take a look. Yeah. Um, but you know, it would have been a very different Australia because that was back in the, the 1830s when he started on that voyage, I think. Um, yeah, I had in my notes that that's when he started, but I didn't have notes that he went to Australia. So that's it. Fantastic. 1836, he was here. Okay. Um, and yeah, so he left at the age of 27. Uh, I was here in Australia as an 18-year-old, so a little younger than that, <laughs> uh, and certainly without the kind of knowledge that he had. But the same thing. I was inspired by the animals, the things here, and uh, and. I, I can see why he had so many of his great ideas here um, in Australia and on that trip. Yeah, I his, gap year. <laughs> his gap year. That's right, the ultimate gap year. Um, well, that, I mean, that's that's really interesting. The parallels between your career and Darwin's there that we could draw upon together. Um, so, well, let's 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 set sail with Darwin properly um, because, of course, he didn't come to Australia first. So he set off from uh, England on the, the HMS Beagle. And what was the, the point of that trip? So originally he thought it was going to be about a two-year trip. It turned out to be five, so slightly different um, to what he imagined. And he was brought along really as the um, 
gentleman accompaniment to the to the captain, Captain Robert Fitzroy. Um, and so, he, hold on, yeah. gentleman accompaniment. Is that just this is, this is my friend, or <laughs> I think so. I don't think it was quite that way. I think okay. uh, Darwin hadn't yet uh, met his wife Emma right. um, at that time, but I, I don't believe so. Um, but no, it, they they were just friends. Just friends, yeah. Just someone <laughs> to keep him entertained while he was out on sea for a while and talk about interesting stuff. Absolutely, yeah, and okay. he wasn't prepared. Um, I mean, he he was very prepared with the things that he brought with him. He was extremely excited about the, the, the equipment that he bought. He um, he brought with him lots of his notebooks, but he also brought guns because he was pretty sure he was going to have to defend himself at some point. <laughs> um, and something called a, oh, it was it's a club that he also brought with him, a peacekeeper, I think it was called. A, a, peacekeeper, a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper, yeah. Uh, but he also brought um, all the equipment he needed for geological surveys um, and so he was very ready in that respect, but he'd never spent any time in water. And it turns out he gets really seasick. Aww. So, yeah, his first few um, months certainly were not the most pleasant. Yeah, and I can't imagine uh, anything worse than being stuck on a boat when all you are is seasick. And there's there's not much uh, land in sight or opportunity. Just go, no, I'm done. I'm, I'm heading off. That's it. Uh, he didn't really have much chance. And um, funnily enough, I'm also extremely seasick. So I always thought I wanted to be a marine biologist when I started off in zoology and then I spent uh, four weeks living on a boat um, entirely drugged up by seasickness tablets and I thought <laughs> well this isn't going to be life for me. No, no yes. and then Darwin didn't even have access to quills and that oh, sort of thing. Oh no he didn't, uh, he probably didn't know about the joy of ginger either, poor mm-hmm. lad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love these parallels though, more parallels between you and Darwin, you're the modern day Darwin ever. <laughs> Without the beard thankfully. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright so I love this image though that we have of a young 18 year old you said uh, who's super keen on uh, geology he's got his notebooks to see yeah he's early 20s actually yes Uh, early 20s no he's yeah he's about uh, I think at this point he's probably about 24 so he's uh, already studied at university um, and he's done his medical degree at Edinburgh and this is an important point for him because uh, at that time he didn't like cutting up things he thought it was very gross he saw human cadavers um, and humans not dead being cut up and he thought it was it was awful he was appalled by it and so he, he sort of moved away from that and was looking at um, being trained by naturalists so people who were interested in animals and plants and all of those things um, but he also uh, sort of got really into geology at that time and I guess we'll, we'll touch on that a bit later but it was those series of events uh, that actually led him to being um, invited to to joining the Beagle and to, to come along with this sort of generalist attitude of knowing about lots of these different things um, probably not his medical knowledge I doubt he was brought on for that respect um, but yeah just to, to, to survey what was going to be um, a really exciting unknown expedition to go out and discover really yeah yeah do you do you find that in your work um because i feel a lot of the time now when we look at uh, science you know we think all the the interesting stuff's been discovered but do you do you sometimes get that feeling in your work that you're going out to discover something absolutely uh especially when it comes to new species um they're everywhere and all you have to do is look so I discovered a new species of, a, of an amphibian that I, a group of amphibians that I work on, Sicilians, uh, while on field work in French Guiana. And that was just 
the best experience ever. And I've only found one. Darwin named hundreds. And when I was at the Natural History Museum in London, I was sent on a little mission um, by the curators. I was there as an assistant curator. And I was sent to go and find some specimens um, for photographing in the collection. And I came across the jar that I was looking for and I almost dropped it because on the label it said, Collector C. Darwin. No. Like, oh, wow. So this lizard from South America had been collected by Darwin it had had its neck completely severed at the back, obviously um, one knife motion. So he must have brought a knife with him as well. Yeah. Um, he got better at cutting up Yeah, I then. think so. It was yeah. fairly well done. Um, and here is a specimen collected by Darwin in, in my hands that, you were, that I was oh. holding and that I had to photograph. And I was, I was shaking and he must have just, he didn't know how to do a lot of these things. He learned it all on the way. And... And yet he probably had an amazing fear of joy, a uh, feel of fearing of joy every time he just saw all these creatures that he'd never even been prepared to see. Yeah, that's fantastic. The, I think we look on a lot of these uh, uh, amazing scientists, uh, you know, they appear like giants now in the distance, but in reality they were young once and nervous and had no idea what they were doing but gave it a go. Absolutely, and he wasn't even very good at school. He didn't like school. He didn't like being forced to learn things. And so Darwin was, was sent off to Edinburgh to medical school because he wasn't doing well in, in normal education. Not that medical school means is, is a natural progression from <laughs> no. that, but he needed some really strict training because he wasn't doing well. Mm. Well, and that's that's an interesting point you make there because I think uh, oftentimes uh, science calls for that discovery that, uh, you know, just exploring where things go and, and often education doesn't necessarily lend itself to that. Um, but there's a big movement now, especially with STEM push throughout Australia, to get school more about discovery and, and finding those sorts of things and because uh, that's really what ignites people's passion I think. I think so and that was the key to Darwin was that he liked to learn things for himself and so by going on this journey he made so many incredible discoveries because he allowed his mind to think and to see everything around him and he didn't let himself be uh, corralled by the rigidity of, of curriculum and, uh, and textbooks. Yeah, no, fantastic. Well, let's make our way back to this journey now. So he's jumped on the HMS Beagle. It's headed off uh, from uh, from England. Uh, and uh, where were they heading? And so they were heading basically a nice round-the-world trip. So they went down through the islands off the coast of uh, the west coast of Africa. Um, and then from there, they cut across the Atlantic and headed towards Central and South America, um, where eventually they were going to go round underneath um, and then across the Pacific, across to Australia. So it was a really long journey. Yeah. I think originally the plan, though, was perhaps was never to go that far, but they were doing so well. You, know, you wouldn't have been able to go that far in two years. So they yeah. were obviously doing so well that they extended it. Mm. No, and, and so some of the biggest discoveries that he made on that, that trip were through the Galapagos. I think that's what everyone sort of relates Darwin to is Darwin and the Galapagos. So what, what did he find there? Well, the thing that struck him the most about the Galapagos was he wondered how animals had got there. 
It's an isolated island. You can, a set of islands, you can get there off from Ecuador, but it's a really long way from Ecuador. And the, mm. the water around there is extremely dangerous. There's something just south of the Galapagos that's a, a very um, treacherous area of water that was actually made famous on the, um, the Contiki um, exploration, um, where if the raft had got into that whirlpool, it would have been sucked into oblivion. So it's he knew that this was a really dangerous area water-wise, and it was so isolated. And yet what he found there were these enormous tortoises and these lizards, these giant um, uh, marine iguanas that he'd seen iguanas elsewhere. But these ones were seemingly so happily um, jumping into the water and, and feeding under the water in this, in this salty environment. It, it blew his mind. <laughs> it really did. Yeah. And so, I mean, had they, had they discovered animals like this before anywhere else? Uh, giant tortoises were known in other places, uh, like in Mauritius, um, where they had been heavily hunted. Um, so, in fact, um, the... Oh, trying to remember. Um, a, a naturalist of the UK um, had gone out on expeditions and taken um, very large numbers of these um, giant tortoises and brought them back to the UK. So they were certainly known, but to find them in the Galapagos, the thing that struck him as well was the diversity of the animals in the Galapagos uh, and how the tortoises all seemed, there were lots of different types. Uh, and yet they were all in the same place. And so this started to set his mind in motion that there were many different types of animals. That in the UK, it's fairly limited. We don't have that many types of any one of animal. And so when he goes out on this expedition and he starts seeing all sorts of variants along the same theme. It's getting his mind working to the ideas that he had already started to learn in, in Edinburgh. This idea of transmutation was already being discussed. And transmutation basically is um, where species are changing. They're not static, but the idea of transmutation was spontaneous generation from uh, spontaneous change from generation to generation. And it didn't have this unifying idea of uh, having a common ancestor. But on his journey, looking at the tortoises, the most I, most iconic thing for him actually was the barnacles. So he set out and was studying barnacles, uh, these little things that stick to the bottom of ships. Sorry, he's got giant tortoises there and he's more and interested he's more in just the tiny barnacles. Shells. That's the funny thing about Darwin, <laughs> the things that you might think that he would have been so fascinated by. Actually, he doesn't talk that much about the tortoises. He yeah. goes on and on about the barnacles. And the thing about the barnacles is that seeing those, just it was a mess to try and figure out the taxonomy of the barnacles. And that's where he's starting to bring in these ideas of what we call homology, which is where um, uh, shared features um, between species is because they had developmentally come from the same place. Um, so eyes in us and eyes in uh, lizards um, are homologous because they come from the same origin. Um, eyes from us and eyes from insects actually don't have the same origins so they're right. not they're, they're functionally homologous but they're not bi biologically homologous anyway these ideas for him um, were really sort of it took a very long time for them all to come together but it blew his mind that the idea that there was just so much diversity all slightly li little changes um, on the same theme 
Right. And uh, yeah, the barnacles. He, he cared a lot more about than the tortoises, I'm afraid. Well, it's, it's probably a good thing, though, because this is, this is what is prompting his brain to start working and making these connections. And so while he's out there, um, is he collecting samples from there or is he just jotting it all down in these many, many notebooks? He's writing lots and lots of notes and he's sending the notebooks back to the UK. So all the time the notebooks are feeding through. But the, the, the collections are enormous. He's collecting everything that he can get a hold of. He's He's been told to do so. So it's um, reptiles, amphibians, birds, all oh, lots and lots of plants as well. Um, he's collecting everything that he can. But the funny thing is with the where I said about the Natural History Museum in London, you might think that that would be the place where all of Darwin's collections are. But it wasn't originally, because he didn't actually have a good connection with Owen, who owned the Natural History Museum. He was the, the head of the Natural History Museum. So Darwin never wanted any of his material to go there. It was only after he died that his collections that had been deposited elsewhere, like the Oxford Natural History Museum it, and, and private collections, got shifted to the London NHM. I think he'd be turning in his grave to know that most of his specimens are in fact there now. Ah, oh, that's unfortunate, isn't it? Yes. There's, there's still those rivalries between scientists. It's, it's very much a person's game um, in there. Okay, so he's, he's going along, he's finding all these things. Um, but uh, what, what sort of, uh, you know, is he reaching any conclusions yet? Or does that happen a bit later on? He's writing all of his ideas down. Mm. And uh, actually, the thing that perhaps most people don't realise about Darwin is that he wrote more on that journey about geology than he did about zoology and animals. <laughs> he wrote, I think, three, three times as much in his notebooks about geology. So what he was fascinated by was he saw shells in rocks, in layers of rocks. And he understood from his Lyle textbook that he had um, on geology that this was uh, deposits of sediment underneath the sea. But he didn't understand why it was above ground. Why are these layers of fossils that we now sort of take for granted that we, we know about the uplift of, um, of, the, uh, of, of mountains and moving tectonic plates. But at that time, the, the slow movement of geological features wasn't, was still very heavily debated and people weren't thinking about that. So he wrote a lot about that. He wrote about the formation of volcanoes. He thought about the formation of coral atolls and how it was basically just poo that was of, of animals that was um, like the, the sand is just um, uh, is parrotfish eating coral and then letting it out in their poo. Um, and that the corals are, in fact, it's secreted um, calcium from these little uh, these little polyps that are producing these coral atolls. So all of the um, the ideas that he was really forming were all about the slow uh, movement of of the earth, the fact that the earth was changing, that there was deep time. And that was really important for his ideas about evolution because that's all about deep time and the slow change of animals. But really he was writing about coral reefs yeah. or his barnacles. He wasn't thinking so much about the animals, I guess, until a little bit later. Mm, that's that's quite interesting. That but the whole, uh, I suppose, the whole part of it comes together in terms of that slow movement of, of things changing and, and moving around, and, and it all sort of pieces together in the in that puzzle yes. that he'd be putting together. 
That's fantastic. Well, look, we're going to continue the journey with Charles Darwin in uh, just a little bit. But uh, before we do, we, you know, we'll finish up this Beagle journey and, and go through Australia and back to land. But uh, we might just have a little bit of a music break. Uh, so today I have some uh, very special music. This is uh, Barbar Brinkman, who's a peer-reviewed rapper, and he's done a whole lot on evolution. Uh, so here's Barbar Brinkman's song, Darwin's Acid. of his universal acid and the effects were like magic burning human arrogance into ashes in pretty much the same way that Copernican math did no the stars don't shine just to improve the view from earth no we're not the center of the universe no we were not created in the image of Jupiter no we are not so special and yes the truth hurts but that's how evolution works once it's been applied the acid into the superstitious side of the human mind and fills it with light. It even dissolves the original sin of pride. That pride that says, I'm a special creation and my creator has given me dominion over nature and he has the power to replenish his creatures. So if species go extinct, well, he can recreate them later. And if he doesn't, well, that's just part of his plan. But Darwin's acid is hard to withstand. It plucks the arrogance deep from within the hearts of man. And it teaches us never to build our houses on sand. But instead to try to understand why we're here. We are just one species among millions in this biosphere. And we have millions of ancestors behind us. And their fighting spirits combined to give us this great survival gear. These minds, these limbs, these incredible tools perfected by millennia of constant competitive use. And yes, these attention-seeking genitals too. Without them, these living forms could never improve. It's such an elegant view, so filled with breadth and grandeur. And yet some people react with depression and anger like it's so unsympathetic. It's so viciously random. I mean, what's the point of compassion or, or ethical standards if this is all just a game that these mindless little organisms are trapped in and all they're doing is genetically adapting to environmental factors, then there is no responsibility for individual actions. It's nihilistic. Where is the governing dynamic? Well, once again, Darwin does give us some answers. He says, yes, everything from violence to violets to viruses, it's all just organisms adapting to environments. If you're alive, it's because your ancestors were the best survivalists. They were the finalists in the genetic Olympic Games. Every one of your ancestors made it to reproductive age, and they were all better than their competitors at getting laid. Otherwise, you just wouldn't be sitting here today. Now, some say, ooh, that's cynical, but I see something inspirational in this vision of Darwin's, and it goes like this. Organisms like us are not isolated. We are also part of the environmental mix, so your decisions affect evolution. It isn't directionless. Now, before you dismiss me as a mad environmentalist, just try to imagine how natural selection applies to countries that have industrialized. Just like organisms, companies live and companies die. Customers buy based on a company's ethics or its green plan. Well, that 
affects the economy. Just ask Alan Greenspan. See, cultural evolution is ours to reinvent. Wait, can we affect current events? Yes, we can. When we choose who to sleep with and reproduce, our sexual choices affect the gene pool. So if we want things to improve, it's simple. All we need to do is refuse to sleep with mean people. I'm speaking especially to women. On you, the pressure is greater because men will always do what it takes to get into your favor. That's just in our nature. So if selfish behavior was a sexual graveyard, the effects would be major. See, in each of these cases, our intentional efforts can play the part of those environmental pressures. I can say this is a space where a peaceful existence will never be threatened by needless aggression. I can say this is an ecosystem where people listen, where justice increases over egotism. I can say this is a space where religions achieve coexistence and racism decreases with each coalition. This is my vision of Darwinism and how we all factor in. Each of us is a part of the environment. We each pass through it and then we change it. And we affect the way that other people will adapt to it. And then after we get to look back and, and see how we impacted it and then maybe have a laugh if our sense of humor is still alive. And what did Charles Darwin do with his time? He threw some light on the origins of humankind and he left us with skewered pride. But he taught us that yes, there is grandeur in this view of life. There is grandeur in this view of life. And the fact that it also happens to be true is nice. And that was Baba Brinkman there with Darwin's Acid. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM right here in Canberra. This is your science on a Sunday, and this Sunday is particularly special because it is Darwin Day. It's Charles Darwin. Scientist described as someone with immense intellectual bravery, a perpetual curiosity, and a ravenous hunger for truth. I think they're pretty good statements about anyone and pretty good statements about most scientists. And uh, the scientist I have in the studio here with me is Dr. Emma Sherritt, who we keep finding as we talk throughout the day has more and more parallels to Darwin and his life. So I, I, I'm calling Emma our modern day Darwin. Um, <laughs> so she's, I don't know if she's quite ready to take this title, uh, but she is an evolutionary uh, biologist from right here at the ANU. And uh, before the break, Emma, you were taking us on a journey with, with Darwin on the Beagle. Uh, we'd made our way, we'd departed, we'd gone across through the Galapagos. We talked about the fact that Darwin uh, had a trip to Australia too. And uh, eventually that, that journey would have come to an end, much later than expected. Uh, but he, would have, he came home again. And what was awaiting him when he got home? Well, I guess um, he'd been away for quite a while, but at the at that time, um, we're talking about the mid 1800s. Um, there was definitely rife discussion about evolution. Um, the idea of species changing certainly was was nothing new at that point, and he wasn't the only one that was making these kind of discoveries and thinking about it so there will be the person Wallace that will come up quite often when people talk about Darwin and um, maybe uh, Wallace Alfred Russell Wallace who was another gentleman naturalist at the time um, is has been seen as sort of the 
uh, the, the underdog. He's been um, forgotten in the time when Darwin came up with his ideas because supposedly Alfred, Wallace, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace also came up with the, the theory of evolution by natural selection at the same time. Um, certainly, like science today, people are discussing the same concepts around the world and theories and ideas can come at the same time. Uh, so Darwin arrived back in the UK with uh, all of his ideas coming into a world where people were heavily discussing transmutation, um, which was sort of the, the, the precursor, I suppose, to evolution, even though it's not really the same thing. So yeah, tra transmutation in their thinking, you were saying earlier, that was more just thinking that genes randomly change. Oh, they weren't certainly thinking about genes. Oh, Genetics was, yeah. <laughs> was, was uh, quite far behind at this point. Um, no, what they were, but they were thinking about spontaneous changes happening generation by generation and it was in fact Darwin's gr grandfather that came up with the first hypothesis about transmutation that was then taken by a French scientist Lamarck um, later later on and sort of formulated and so Lamarckian theory was the really the idea that was dominating and Darwin was trying to put all of his ideas and his, his thoughts about what he'd seen on his travels in this framework of Lamarckian um, transmutation. Mm. And it wasn't really fitting. Uh, almost a, a square peg in a round hole type of situation. It. It's like, no, we need the square hole now to yeah. change it all the thinking. So he thought about it and he thought about it for quite a while, didn't he, Emma? He did. He did. So he sat on his notes. Um, well, he wrote lots of other things um, throughout the time. He, um, But he was the, the big central book, the one that we always think about on the origin of species by means of natural selection, didn't come until 22 years later or so. Um, he sat on it for a, for a good long while. And in, in today's age, none of us can sit on a paper for that long. It, uh, <laughs> it, would, it would kill our careers. Um, but in, in those days, it was, I suppose it, it lagged for quite a while. Um, but it, it wasn't so unheard of to, to sit and think about it. Because first of all, what he had to do was publish all of his notes from the Beagle. And that took a long time. He wrote his books on geology and atoll um, formation. And he also wrote um, all of his notes up about the zoological finds and all the species that he came up with. So he was certainly kept busy for a long time with that, with the ideas of evolution um, floating around in the back of his mind. I love, I love that idea that it's just kind of mulling it over and, and, and letting that idea form. And it's it's interesting point you make that you know you guys can't sit on research for any period of time now, um, and I suppose that's probably a reflection of, of the world the way it is now in, in terms of instant communication and that sort of thing. But do do you sometimes wonder, you know, do we need a bit more reflection time to sit on these things before Absolutely. we release? Absolutely. I think it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a deficit of, of academia and um, science in the modern age that we don't get time to sit and, and really think about our ideas. We, there's a publish or perish attitude in academia. We have to produce so many papers a year and we, um, for, for funding reasons, we need to prove why our research is important for the Australian Research Council and other big funding bodies. This is government work. You as the, the public are paying our salaries so so you need to know that we're we're doing something important with it. And if the work gets published, then it's seen as important. Um, but it was really 
I think, so necessary for Darwin to sit and think about these things for a long time because it was a huge wealth of information that came together to form the, the hypothesis of evolution by natural selection. It's called a theory. Um, we use, I think it's important to say that we use that term. It doesn't mean that um, uh, a theory in the way of, uh, I, I just, I think that this is the case and we can blow it out of the water. It's, it's uh, a theory in science is an idea that is backed up by a lot of scientific evidence. And in this case, he had notebook after notebook of scientific evidence behind definitely the idea that things were, were changing slowly. His most important idea from all of this is that all these creatures had a common ancestor. And that was something so different from the Lamarckian idea of transmutation. That, that thought that everything was separate and had been created separately. He had an idea that everything was in fact sharing a common ancestor or perhaps common ancestors. The idea of a single common ancestor perhaps wasn't quite in his mind at that time. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier that, uh, and I looked this up because it was it's an amazing picture, that, that little picture of a tree that he first drew um, that was really that... that, that uh, <laughs> The, the sprouting of that idea and you know we'd probably recognize it as a, as a family tree now if you look at a family tree you see people descending down from each other but in this case he was looking at some that sort of tree diagram for species absolutely and it's funny that that I think uh, figure that he drew um, where he was pondering that all of these species would be sharing a common ancestor uh, is exactly the framework that we use today and in fact I use on a daily basis. It is the statistical framework behind all of my research on comparing animals that are closely related. We use that same branching diagram. It's called a phylogenetic tree and uh, we, we really have to, to thank him um, for coming up with uh, with, with yeah, coming up with that idea. Mm, fantastic. So that it's still going today, still in use, is just uh, amazing to think of. So he he finally got around to mulling it over, and he's like, "Yep, I've got this." Wrote it down, drew his tree, and 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 was ready to to put the word out there. What what happened when that word was released? Well, first of all, um, he was very scared. He, he thought that it was going to cause some trouble. Um, and the reason that he thought it was going to cause some trouble was that people, there were many proponents of the Lamarckian theory, and it, it made a lot of sense that, yes, we could see th sort of variants on the same theme, but everything was uniquely created. For him to have this idea of things sharing a common ancestor and therefore changing a lot more than other people were expecting at that time um, was was going to be met with a lot of controversy. And uh, it definitely wasn't accepted straight away. Um, there, it, it, at the time, um, the, the Victorian attitude um, towards science, the, particularly the Royal Society, they didn't want to, um, to shake up the church. And this was going to shake up the church. Mm. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because, uh, again, we were talking earlier that Darwin was a, a churchgoer himself, and so he had to kind of wrestle with that in his own head. I'm sure, of of trying to reconcile his his theory of evolution or his yeah theory yes. of the species with the church uh, um, creation story. 
Absolutely. And his most prized possession that he took with him on the Beagle was the Bible. Mm. And he made notes when he was in Australia about how curious it was that um, different creatures uh, inhabited the same ecological, what we would call now a niche. Um, so the same ecological environment, let's say living in a, in a, in a swamp. Um, so you would have different animals on different continents that were seemingly adapted, and that was another idea of his coming up with adaptation, um, to these different niches. And he thought to himself, why um, has the creator created different animals for the same job? Mm. So, okay, so can you give us an example there? I'm, I'm trying to think of one. So the classic ones, and we call this now convergent evolution mm. in, in, in modern day uh, synthesis, the modern synthesis of evolution and everything that we uh, study now. So um, let me think, the, uh, the hornbill bird and the toucan are two, um, an old world and a new world variant on the same theme. So it's a very large bird with an enormous bill that's used for cracking really hard nuts. Uh, let me think of another one. So you have, um, in here in Australia, you have uh, creatures that are fast running through the trees, your, your possums, and they occupy a very similar ecological niche to the squirrels mm. of North America and of, um, of Europe. Uh, Darwin saw these, these parallels and he saw it in insectivores. You have the hedgehog of the UK, you've got the echidna of Australia, completely unrelated animals that occupy the same niche, they do the same thing in the environment. And it it was definitely a very important thing for him to think about this convergent evolution. And it is today a fundamental part of evolutionary biology, a study in convergent evolution. Because what it tells us is that there's a deterministic um, nature to evolution, where given the right environments, the same thing can evolve even if it's from a completely different background. Mm. Wow. That's, that's just crazy to think about, really, that, um, you know, Australia is just the same as, as other countries. We're just under different conditions. So we had animals that are, are formed in different ways over here to, to those in Europe or the US or Asia. Absolutely. And I think Australia was definitely important for Darwin in that respect because things here are so very different mm. and yet so strangely similar. Um, that you have the marsupials as taking over wherever, everywhere else was the placental animals, the animals that give birth to live young um, and feed with milk um, like us. So um, I think yeah, it, undoubtedly Australia was really important for, for Darwin coming up with these. And the fact that he thought about convergent evolution here is is brilliant it's yeah. another thing for australia to be proud of <laughs> indeed we, we do love our unique animals over here um so yeah so he's, he's been worried about uh, releasing his theory of evolution he's trying to reconcile his own christianity with that theory um but eventually he does he does publish the, mm. the on the origin of the species um, how's that received by, by other scientists at the time? Because it really is making a huge giant step from the Lamarckian uh, theory that they've been operating with to something completely different. I think it was, um, it was controversial and it didn't actually come into uh, strength. It wasn't um, the dominant theory for perhaps, I think it's another maybe 20 years actually, um, until the point of... Um, 
so I should say that between sort of the the late 1800s to the early 1900s, um, the idea is out there, but there are not many proponents for it. And so what in fact happens is that it's not really, it doesn't actually become dominant until the uh, sort of early to mid 1900s. So the idea is out there, and he's not the only one that comes up with it. There's the important point, is that somebody else, also Wallace, comes up with the idea of evolution by natural selection around about the same time. And the, the jury is out as to whether he scooped Wallace. If he really, in fact, was a, a bad guy, was Darwin a bad guy? None of us like to think of it as such. But the, one of the pushes that definitely made him release the origin was because he'd received a letter from Wallace explaining exactly the same thing and that was the point where he thought right i need to get it out there mm-hmm. um but it wasn't an instant success and in fact in darwin's life his biggest selling book wasn't the origin it was his book on earthworms no. <laughs> have you heard of his book on earthworms no that's not in the the penguin classics you can't <laughs> buy that one <laughs> it was darwin's last book Uh, It was published in 1881, just uh, prior to his death in 1882. He was 72 years old when he pulled together his work on earthworms. And the most important thing about his work on earthworms was that he showed that they weren't a pest. In the 1800s, people thought that earthworms were pests. And he showed from probably about 20 to 30 years of diligent digging in his garden in, in, oh, the name, I forget where it was, um, in the, the home where he um, passed away eventually, he was digging up the garden in very scientific plots to prove that earthworms were in fact cycling the soil and making it more fertile. So we owe gardeners, especially owe Darwin um, a lot for his work on earthworms in his later life. I just love that it's another important discovery, like nowhere near the level of importance as as on the the evolution and, uh, but just an amazing discovery nonetheless of earthworms. I think it's fascinating that he has so many of these things behind him, and because there was. But it was just a different time being mm. a scientist in those days. And um, because he was given all this time to think and come up with his ideas, he published so widely and so many books. And Evolution is by far his his biggest work, but it's really wonderful that he was, in fact, so broad and as an inspiring scientist for for us today to think that, you know, we always think that we have to specialise and we have to have our one focus in our careers. But it turns out you can uh, you can publish on quite a variety of things and still make an impact. You can. You can have a huge impact. That's so true. And in fact, that's what I want to talk about now is the impact of Darwin's research as it continues through to today. You know, we could sit here and talk about Darwin's science in isolation, but I have a current modern-day real-life scientist right here in front of me with you, Dr. Emma. And so I want to share some of your research stories about the research that you've done in evolutionary biology. Now, you mentioned earlier the Sicilians. We're going to leave them aside for the minute. And also evolution in scallops, which is, you know, you, you paid Darwin out for studying barnacles, but you studied scallops. I mean, come on. <laughs> At least you can eat... Well, actually, no, you can eat barnacles too. Uh, I stepped on that one. <laughs> All right. But we're not going to talk about scallops either. We're going to talk about the Anolis lizard. Uh, so... The Anolis lizard. T- tell is, me about this lizard. Um, it's... 
the probably the most classic um, model system of evolutionary biology today. Uh, you may have heard of um, Darwin's finches. They weren't, in fact, Darwin's finches at all because he didn't come across them at all. But they brought together Darwin's finches from the Galapagos Island uh, was named because they brought together Darwin's ideas about change, natural selection and species going from having sharing a common ancestor and radiating, that is, producing lots of different species, all with slightly different niches all with different dietary niches in this case so the the um the finches are well known for the fact that there's a whole load of different finches that specialize in eating different uh seeds and nuts and they have anatomically what we call morphologically changed to fit and adapt to each of those that's right the, the classic picture for the finches are these little bird heads all each with slightly different beaks and just just ever so slightly different but dif small differences between them uh, yes, exactly that. So they, uh, they were named Darwin's finches because they brought together Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection and the idea that natural, you naturally select for animals that could feed on um, tougher and tougher foods and as such they grow tougher and tougher beaks. Well, the anolis lizards, in my opinion, are that much better than that <laughs> because it's not just one radiation where you have a whole load of different lizards that have evolved to be adapted to different environments. It's happened again and again on every island of the main islands in the Caribbean. You've got a radiation of these lizards. What we now know is that on each island, there are maybe five or six, depending on the island, um, niches that these lizards can occupy. So these are little lizards. They're iguana-style lizards, but they're usually only as big as my hand. Um, and they live in different areas of the tree and the forest. So some are specialists to the grass and the bushy landscapes and they're living down on the ground. They have really long limbs because they need to be moving through um, uh, this sort of complex habitat. Then you've got ones that live on the base around trees or the tree trunk itself or up in the canopy of the trees. And there in each stage, these lizards look different. They have different body shapes to fit their environment. As you go up and up the tree, the legs get proportionally shorter, but they have sticky toe pads just like the gecko. And their toe pads become more and more complex as they move up and up the tree. And this brings together Darwin's thoughts early on of why would you have the same creature evolving in separate places just because the niche, the, envir the environment is the same. And because the, the lizards have done it so brilliantly, it's such a beautiful model system that every island where you have these same habitats, you have the same looking lizards evolving unrelated to each other that's the important point so, so, so this is a this is convergent evolution so on island a mm -hmm. you have the ground lizard the tree lizard the top of the tree lizard and on island b you have the ground lizard the tree lizard and the top of the tree lizard but they they happen completely independently of each other because they're on island a and island b absolutely that's exactly it so this is bringing together what darwin was thinking about when he made the comment why would you have um the uh, different animals occupying the same environments. Well, in this case, they're not so different. They're the same group of lizards, but they actually haven't all shared a common ancestor until f uh, back 40 million years or so.
And so when we've got this this phylogenetic tree, this branching diagram like Darwin's I think diagram, this tells us how all of our species are related to each other. And we make hypothesis based on how quickly their genetics are mutating, how we're looking at their, their genes. And we can make a, a clock, basically, to try and figure out when they might have shared a common ancestor. And that was estimated to be around 40 million years ago. Okay, great, but how do we know if that's correct? And this is where my research came in. Right, because if we look at it at the moment, the, these lizards still exist in, in the Caribbean now. We can see them, but we're really looking at the, the, the very branched out areas of this diagrams. So, yeah, how are you tracing it back to those, those points in the diagram? So what we need to know as we sort of trace the, um, the relationship of these species is... Um, did they evolve very early on and have they always been, although they, they, they may be radiated really fast and we have lots of species um, coming about all at exactly the same time or very early on, and were they already occupying those niches or did it happen really slowly and did those niches um, come about much later? Um, this was These are questions that we just didn't really know and we couldn't tell simply from looking at all of these modern animals. And then what happened was that we came across the fossils of this animal. And as evolutionary biologists, we are really interested in fossils, these dead animals preserved in rock, um, traces of, and, and other substances. So in my case, amber, the, um, the fossilized resin of trees. Um, these fossils, like Darwin understood that fossils were really important for understanding the evolution of animals, fossils still today play a really important role in us understanding um, how all of these animals came to be and whether this hypothesis that we can produce from these trees uh, is, is, is supported or not. So wait, you said you're studying these lizards that are fossilized in amber. So this is this is very Jurassic Park esque. Extremely, like, it's it's fantastic because that's that moment in the in the yellow rock like substance that that's kind of see through. They take the blood from the mosquito and start producing all these um, dinosaurs. Are you doing a similar thing with these lizards? Are you trying to get in there and, and take the blood from the lizard? Sadly, the it's unlikely we're going to get any organic tissue from the specimens. And that was that was a shame. Um, we were certainly interested in being able to extract some DNA from these lizards. So what else have we got? Well, we've got the way that the animal looks. So my research is all about studying how the animals look, looking at um, morphological features like the length of their limbs, um, the size of their head, uh, how many scales they have in different places. All of these features are important diagnostically for describing different species and the relationships among the species. But it's also really helpful then when we have these fossils because then it can tell us, well, where do the fossils fit in this tree? Since remember that a fossil is in fact somewhere along one of those branches, it, it's never at a, uh, a junction. So we don't have the ancestor to all of these species. We've just got one of its long lost cousins that died off. Mm. And so what we had in the end from this study was a snapshot in time, 25 million years ago. So Jurassic Park, they got it a little off with their idea of 60 million years. The, Jurassic, the amber of the Dominican Republic and uh, surrounding areas in the Caribbean is only 20 to 25 million years old. But it's more than enough for us to say, okay, what's happening at this snapshot in time? We've got almost 40 fossils that were caught of these little lizards caught in amber as they were moving around in the trees. 
what does this tell us? We've got two hypotheses. Either the animals diversified really quickly under the ideas of Darwin and um, you had by, by natural selection, you've got all of these um, species evolving because they've radiated into different environments, they've adapted to different environments, or it's happened much more slowly and it comes about later. So what do we have in this snapshot of time? It turns out that we've got the diversity that we see today that in this, uh, in this fossil um, snapshot, we find the, the, the lizards that live in, uh, on the, uh, the trunks of the trees, the ones that are living out on the, the small twigs. Um, we see the same morphological features that we see today in this little rock sample. So in some ways, they haven't really changed all that much in 20 million years. And would your thoughts behind that be because they've found their niche? That's their, it. They're, their, there. they're there. Once they're in it, uh, they aren't. They are. They uh, have stayed in that niche, yeah. and that's really interesting for us to try and understand about the dynamics of evolution. Because in some respects, evolution moves really fast, and Darwin knew this for sure. He could see that just over. Um, uh, small generations, things were changing. But he also understood this really deep time, slow, um, per perpetual, but very slow change that was happening around us. And this has perplexed, perplexed scientists ever since he started to talk about these ideas. And we still don't really know whether evolution does have, um, is moving fast or slow. And what we can really say, actually, it's it's both. Um, depending on the animals, some things evolve really, really slowly and don't seem to change at all over a short, uh, over a long period of time. And other things evolve incredibly fast, like viruses. Mm. So I suppose evolution isn't dead today at all there's still there's potentially still fast evolution going on and and maybe slow evolution as well is, absolutely yeah. um i think that the pace of evolution changes heavily uh as you look across creatures we've got here in australia the stromatolites off the west coast of australia these are these weird um lumpy structures that look like algae covered rock and that's really what they are but you have in the pilbara the exact same thing from billions of years ago these these structures, which are the, the earliest life forms in some respects, haven't changed in billions of years. And yet you've got li these lizards, uh, maybe not in this case, but you've got the uh, in Hawaii, you have um, birds evolving very fast in very short periods of time. The Hawaiian islands are really only a couple of million years old. And yet you've got the same kind of radiation, convergent evolution um, processes happening in really small bursts. As evolutionary biologists, we, we can't reconcile these things. It blows our mind that uh, evolution can happen so slowly and also so fast, depending on what you're looking at. Um, yeah. Hmm. And to confirm that fast and slow scale there, because I hadn't quite realised, so the slow scale is, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 100 million years, but the, the, the fast scale is in the one million year range? It can be, absolutely. I mean, we're happening yeah. in generations today. Yeah. Um, certainly in, in viruses, things are evolving very, very fast. And mm. we can see that in disease resistance, for example. That is a, a wonderful example of evolution and evolution happening very quickly indeed. Um, and so as evolutionary biologists, our, our research looking at both the slow pace stuff and looking at fossils, but also working on viruses um, is trying 
trying to bring together how one unifying theory of evolution by natural selection um, is actually really happening. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all that around the theory today from the history right to the present day research around that, Emma. It's just amazing um, that uh, we're still uh, able to discover so much about uh, the world around us and how it has changed over time and and what what really has happened as part of this. Uh, So thank you very much for that, Emma. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. It has been a fantastic episode today as we've explored uh, Darwin and the theory of evolution and made our way from the past to the present. So I hope you've enjoyed this journey. Uh, Don't forget, if you do enjoy your Fuzzy Logic shows, you can tune into the podcasts. They're on Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. Also like us on our Facebook page. Just search for Fuzzy Logic and you'll find us there. But that wraps it up for the episode today. Uh, So make sure you tune in same time next week for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.